Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and my energy expert co-host this week is Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project. Jan, how are you doing? Uh, Dave, I'm, I'm good. Uh, it's, it's scorching heat here in Oxford um, and I gave, a, I think, a webinar a couple of days ago on heat decarbonisation, which was rather odd sitting in an office that was probably 35 degrees centigrade or something like that, speaking about heat decarbonization. But then winter is around the corner, I hear. So um, I'm getting getting ready for um, uh, Christmas already. Absolutely. Oh, you've you said the C word already, Anne. Yes, Christmas not too far away. Um, again, very warm here in London. I've had to shut my window for this recording. So um, yes, getting very hot already. Speaking of uh, the UK and its warm weather, uh, this week we are focusing on the UK's decarbonisation journey following a politically tumultuous few years, uh, to say the least. Uh, where is the UK now uh, and is it on track for the energy transition? With much of the country suffering from a cost of living crisis, people are more focused on saving money than trying to reduce their emissions. Meanwhile, the UK government has repeatedly claimed to want to make the country a leader in low carbon technologies, yet their actions often speak to the opposite. Our guest this week is Chris Carberry, Smart Solutions Director from Scottish Power, a utility company and a part of Spain's Iberdrola's group. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Dave. Hi, Jan. Thank you very much for, for having me. I'm really excited to, to meet you. Uh, and you, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to join us. Um, I don't really want to necessarily call you a, a veteran of the energy sector, Chris, uh, but you've spent the last two, de- two decades at Scottish Power. Um, and in that time, the UK has gone from around 40% coal in in its electricity mix to 2%. Um, what are the biggest ways the energy sector, from your point of view, has changed in the country over the, over the course of your career? Well, I'd never felt like a veteran until you just almost described me as one just there, and but you can't hide two decades, I don't suppose. So, uh, and, and you're right in that time, and how could you not see a change in, in that period? I think, you know, from, from my perspective, so, you know, as you know, Scottish Power, or for anybody that doesn't know Scottish Power, so we're a fully integrated energy company. What that means is that we generate electricity, and we only generate it using renewable means, so we don't generate it any other way. Uh, we transport that energy through transmission and distribution uh, wires across different parts of the UK, uh, and we supply it to, to customers and the customer business is, is where I've been for the last 20 years uh, and on that side then then obviously there's been a lot of change um, you know go back 20 years you're in the early days of, of deregulation in the UK in terms of uh, all those different parts but in particular energy supply side of, of things so you know no longer were people obligated to be supplied by the local distributors that would have been and, and you know there was competition to, uh, with lots of new companies to, to supply energy and, and really the, the kind of the, the challenge there was you know people trying to consolidate from an energy supply industry uh, and customers trying to get uh, cheaper and lower prices and, and over that period we've seen you know prices uh, decrease a lot and competition I think had a, a, certainly a significant part to play in that 
what did that mean? Or we ended up with a, a big six energy um, companies in, in the UK, and that was kind of felt to be, in some quarters, to be stifling some competition. So, you know, that, that opened the door to some challenger brands. Uh, you know, in, in, in that period, we've had lots of challenger brands. I think we went from big six to over 100 suppliers in the UK at one point. Um, but realistically, you know, that, that, that was never going to be sustainable. And I think, unfortunately, two things in terms of, the price cap in the UK, uh, I can understand the reasons for, for that, but, you know, the price cap has had an impact. And also you've had, you know, more laterally the, the energy crisis, you know, but away the energy crisis, but, you know, keenly felt in, in the UK for, for lots of different uh, reasons. Um, and then you've seen a lot of those companies, you know, consolidate down. And now what we're left with, well, we're kind of left with another big six companies, albeit the, the kind of makeup of those companies is now slightly different than, than it was before. I think what's really different than than you know the start of that timeline I've just went through is is how engaged customers are, you know. So from uh, you know the, the, our big challenge previously was trying to get customers engaged, you know, trying to uh, to win customers and real, realistically the customers who were engaged were the ones that moved, but so many were not for for various different reasons. Um, you know, I've spent you know the last few years really just trying to you know get engagement and get customers interested in, in smart solutions and decarbonizing what they need to do and you know to, to help achieve net zero mm-hmm. and you know i think there's, there's huge amounts of interest in that but there's nothing like an energy crisis to kind of highlight the cost of energy uh, to get people really truly engaged and the good news is that you know the things that we can do to decarbonize are also the things that we can do to, to reduce energy and i think people are really really engaged in that now chris you said already that uh, I think you're working more on the demand side, you're the customer side, and I think your remit is to work on, I think, what you call smart solutions. Um, of course, there are many different things people might associate with what a smart solution might be. I mean, uh, it could be sort of electric vehicles or it could be charge points, heat pumps, solar, batteries, maybe all of the above uh, or something else. Could you sort of talk us through what you define as smart solutions and what sort of technologies that you're you're looking at and and maybe also your perception sort of what those technologies will deliver in the future, how important they are um, and and maybe a bit of a journey that I'm sure uh, Scottish Power has gone through because a lot of this stuff is is changing all the time. It's innovating quite fast. So um, big question, but I'm interested in your perspective on smart solutions, broadly speaking, um, in the energy space. Yeah, so so the whole reasons that uh, that we have a smart solutions function in Scottish Power is is well, one is the is the environmental imperative. We need to decarbonise. You know, the, you know, there's a, a crisis that we're trying to, to to manage and deal with, and there's lots of different parts to that. But you know, the consumer, the, the businesses that you know at the end of that energy value chain are, are really really important in that and in, in that behavioural change as, as well. So that's the that's the purpose. That, that that's the mission, as it were. You know, there's lots of different ways of doing that, but technology has a huge part to play. And so, you know, all those things you just you just mentioned there, Jan, in terms of what do we do? So we've got electric vehicle charging solutions. So that's at home at businesses, and we're actually building a, a public network as well. 
Um, we have heat pump solutions, but essentially, you know, we're fairly agnostic um, because heat pumps uh, will be a great solution for, for many of us. But, but realistically, anything that runs off renewable electricity and doesn't emit carbon as a heating solution is, is I think, things that we, we are involved in and, and looking at. Um, from a solar perspective, then, then absolutely, you know, we install solar panels to, to domestic properties and to businesses and, and batteries are a huge part of that now in a way that wouldn't necessarily the case back in, in the fit regime in the UK. Um, but, you know, we see technology again, if you look at batteries that have increased in efficiency and decreased in cost and, and following those laws that we normally see that make make them, you know, absolutely essential to a solar install um, just now as well. So, and but what do those things do? So individually, they all have a really important part to play. You know, so they're either displacing things that create carbon, so like gas heating, for example, um, or displacing, you know, or you're generating your own green renewable energy from, from your rooftop and storing it in, in a battery. And that's also good because, you know, a large part of our electricity generation in the UK is also carbon emitting when you know if you think about gas fire power stations you know um, and, and electric vehicles you know so we help displace petrol diesel emissions by, by encouraging people with uh, to, to move to the electric cars and make that as accessible as possible as well so those things all individually have that benefit collectively well, it means that, you know, a lot of things that we used to burn to create energy uh, are now being, you know, replaced with renewable electricity. So, therefore, renewable electricity uh, has got its own natural constraints in terms of how we use it, when we use it, how the grid interacts with it as well. So, so finally, flexibility, I think, is the real key aspect to, to all of those things. So, as a consumer, you know, I'll be on a journey that makes sure that I'll decarbonize everything from that I do from a, a kind of home point of view, you know, my heating, you know, how I power my home, how I travel uh, places. So, you know, and that'll happen over time. But but actually how I interact with the grid and how I interact with energy generation, especially as we decarbonize it, electricity generation is really important. So the flexibility around about that is, is, is also really key. And that's that's a really interesting and exciting place to be just now because, you know, I go back to the consumer behavior point, you know, it's really difficult to understand and predict how that works because we've not done it before and we've certainly not done it as, as a, a wider society before. So I think it's, it's a really interesting thing for, for us to do. But I think, I think, you know, like I said beforehand, you know, the, the things that really focus people in terms of what do I need to do and why would I want to do it, you know, you can't get away from it. It's cost. Well, what does it cost me and what's the benefit off the back of that? And, and 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 realistically, the good news is that if you can move to a decarbonized home and car, then actually your costs go down uh, largely depending on what you do. Uh, you know, if you retrofit these things onto your home, actually your house value goes up. We did a study with WWF that really demonstrated the, the really positive uh, impact and adding low carbon tech to your house. But it's it's not an easy thing to do for for the vast majority of people. You know, it's capital outlay, it's time, it's it's disruption to the home as well. So again, really, I'm really keen that from a smart solutions point of view, you know, part of our mission as well is how do we make it as easy as possible for consumers to engage, to understand, to know what the right thing to do is, and then to and to take that step. What are the impacts of smart solutions such as heat pumps and EV chargers, uh, but also things like smart meters had in the way big utilities such as Scottish Power and the other big five uh, utilities, how have, how have, what impact has that had on the way they operate in the UK? So I think you mentioned smart meters, right? And I think that's the thing to take first of all. A smart meter is, is your gateway. 
right? So it's without having any low carbon tech, how do you manage your energy in such a way as you reduce your costs or minimize the energy that you use? Because, you know, the best thing that we can do uh, and, the, and the cheapest thing that we can do is to use less energy. Uh, and a smart meter is a really, you know, it's not even a really important thing. It's a vital thing. I don't know how I would ever save money in my own home if I never had a smart meter. So, you know, I think the, the rollout of that, I think, is, is really key and is really important. And, you know, more more than half of the UK's uh, homes have smart meters now. And I think it's really important that we, uh, we complete the rest of that as well. Because you can save energy just, just by monitoring your own energy use. But what it also does is it then highlights, well, what am I using and when am I using it? So then, you know, we get into really interesting things about, you know, electricity in particular in terms of when is it generated and how much it costs. So we understand, you know, from a, a point of view, when we're buying that energy from uh, generators, what that um, what that cost is every half hour throughout the, the day. Um, but from a customer point of view, you know, that's a really kind of complicated proposition uh, and you need to be really engaged to do that so that's why suppliers have always just well we'll wrap that energy price up and we'll protect you from shocks and you know we'll give you a predictable price for a period of time uh, and that allows you to, uh, to to manage your costs with a bit of certainty but it takes away that flexibility to say well actually if you could change your um, demand at different times of the day then actually you know you've got an opportunity to reduce cost again or actually more and more from a network point of view, the network operators are saying actually there's value to us if customers can move and, and change their uh, consumption as well. So I think what it's done from a supply point of view, as a supplier point of view, is we know that we need to help customers reduce their bills. So if you're ready to invest and in, in, or you've got the means to um, to have low carbon tech to help you do that, then we want to make that as easy as possible for you. But if we don't, then we want to give you all the information that's available to, to help you understand how you're using it and when you're using it and when there's opportunities to, to flex that. If you're able to do that, then to offer additional benefits to, to, to customers. Chris, uh, this is clearly a no-brainer. We had, I think, a, an episode a while back where we talked about flexibility and wider system benefits for the grids, but also for the energy system more broadly at length and also the, the savings that consumers can can get from that. And, and uh, you know, I, I've been on a flexible tariff for almost five years now, and, and we, we see at least a third of cost reduction just by being on a flexible tariff and automating devices. Um, but what we also see is that there's still a lot of skepticism, isn't there, when you read some of the media coverage after the national grid flexibility trials uh, last winter, uh, there's lots of talk about rationing um, people's energy use, cutting them off, um, and someone else interfering with um, you know, how you live your life and not allowing you to cook your meal uh, when you want to cook your meal um, or, or use your car when you want to use your car. Uh, and clearly, a lot of that is just scaremongering because uh, with the right technology, the right setup, there's no impact on your comfort, um, on your lifestyle. You're just letting the technology kind of do what it does in order to get you the, the lowest cost service. Um, but how do we solve this this problem you know, of, of people sort of who are maybe not um, energy geeks, you know, not really that engaged, um, understanding the benefits, not not being scared of, of, of a pretty different world, right? Where you no longer just pay a flat fee for each kilowatt hour, but you, you flex your demand, you're a bit more active uh, and not just a passive consumer. You know, how, how do we get to a point where the public at large and also the media uh, will actually buy into this this story of a more flexible demand side. 
So, so I think, you know, we say as a person that's worked with customers for many, many years, I think it's really important to understand there's no one archetypal customer, right? There is a, a range of different things that, that motivate different people for, um, you know, in terms of what they want to do with their energy. So I think if we if we try and build one solution uh, or one experience, then it won't work because it can't appeal to everybody. I think the, the, the key principles behind it, though, are is, is transparency. We need to be really clear, clear with customers in terms of we understand how you currently use energy and then let them know what it would look like if they, if they did something different. And then they're making an informed decision as to, well, I now have a trade-off as, as a householder to say, you know, how much effort is that and how much discomfort would I think that might be versus the benefit that I might get. So, you know, so I seen the stories last winter as well. People sat in the darkness for two hours and didn't have their dinner until 10 o'clock at night and they saved like, pennies on, on their bill. Now, realistically, you know, we could know that beforehand, right? You, those customers would be low energy customers. Therefore, their opportunity to, to flex their, their, their demand is, is going to be limited. So therefore, give them, give them a forecast of what they can save. On the other side of the coin, though, if you're a high energy user, particularly if you've got electric heating, particularly if you've got a heat pump, for example, then actually you've got a large discretionary load that you can increase or decrease depending on what the demand is. So, so those customers can make an informed choice to say, I'm going to switch my heat pump off for an hour. I won't notice any discomfort in my home over that period of time, but I can actually get a significant payback over that. And so it's all about being really upfront and honest with the customer beforehand and letting them have all the information available so they can make, make those choices. And I think that's the other real key thing, and you know, your, your point about the media angle on it is, is, is consumer choice. Nobody's forcing them to do this. If we get to the stage where the network is so incapable of supplying us, uh, you know, uh, you know, even with all these flexible tools at our disposal that we're actually mandating things, then, um, then you know, that will be, you know, a crisis that actually we can completely utterly avert through through the kind of means that we're, we're already working through just now. So, yeah, just having that, that that knowledge, that information, and again, I go back to the point about smart meters. You know, smart meters give you all that information. You know, already you can see what you're using and when you're using it but as suppliers yeah, and that's definitely a step that we can take to say you know I, I know what you're going to use I, I know what your tariff is I know how much money you're going to get back off, off the back of it if you can do this this or this is there anything perhaps on the regulatory side of things either from um, Ofgem uh, the the market regulator or maybe National Grid um, that they can do to help utilities like yourselves do more to support customers in, in providing those sort of services and, and saving money? So, so I think in terms of a flexibility point of view, I think, you know, it's a really great um, thing about having a competitive market. You know, I think it's a real value add that customers, um, you know, will look to and, and understand, you know, if they're, you know, if the market is such that, you know, the, the gap in prices between suppliers is, is minimal because, you know, just the way that energy costs and is traded just now and, and the price gap, then you're looking for other reasons as to why you might want to work with a particular supplier and, and saving money on, on a flexibility solution, I think is a, a really good value add, for example. So I don't think there's anything that, you know, the regulator need to do to, to encourage that, that side of things necessarily. Um, and also you need to recognize that it's not just energy suppliers who can offer those services. So, you know, it goes beyond uh, just the energy supply market. Um, so, you know, which regulator would actually be involved is another interesting question. Um, but so, so yeah, I think from a flexibility, no, right. The, the, but the other point is, is, is deploying smart solutions. So what's the big challenge that we've got in the UK just now is we've got some of the worst insulated homes in Europe. 
um, and I live in, in just outside Glasgow and given how cold it is here most often times it's a really surprising fact but realistically that's the case why? Because we've had access to cheap gas for a long period of time, so we were able to be, you know, fairly wasteful with that energy, and it didn't cost us too much. Well, that's not the case today, so we really need to address that that insulation, that 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 problem we've got that we use more energy than we need because we don't have the ability to get the the maximum efficiency through that. So that that's that's challenge number one, and then challenge number two is you know how do we deploy those smart solutions that you know allow customers more flexibility in how they use their energy, but also generate, store their own energy, flex that energy, uh, and and decarbonize that energy at the same time. Now one of the one of the fantastic things that we've done uh, you know in some place in, in the UK is the is the Eco Four, so it's the energy company. Obligation. So what does that mean? It means that there's a little bit in everybody's tariff that goes towards a, a big central fund. And as suppliers, we, we've got an obligation to, to spend that money and decarbonize as many homes as possible so that the customers receive actual bill savings. And those homes will be the homes of those people who, who absolutely need it most and can afford it least. Uh, so a fantastic place uh, to start and a fantastic uh, opportunity to decarbonize more and more of those homes. What you get through that program is is a lot of uh, economies of scale. Right? So if I'm ins- installing you know ten heat pumps this week and they're in ten different counties in the UK, then you know I don't have much in the way of economies of scale. Um, if I'm doing ten all on the same street, then absolutely I do. So it really brings down the cost of of that that, that deployment, and that's what Eco uh, really gives you an opportunity to do. So I think there's a, a fantastic opportunity. So we've we've installed over a thousand heat pumps that way already this year. You know, so it's a it's a fantastic way of 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 um, decarbonizing those homes. We've got fantastic case studies from customers who just say. I didn't even know what a heat pump was until I got access to this funding, and now I live in a home that's constantly, you know, comfortable, constantly warm, uh, and my bills are, are, are much lower than they were before because they've had the insulation that goes alongside that as well, and, and potentially some solar too. So, what I would really love from a, a regulatory point of view is is recognise that as a delivery method that is really, really efficient, uh, and how do we maximise that as much as possible to get access to more homes? You know, so is that more homes that are fully funded, more homes that are partially funded? You know, you know, if you think about the uh, heat pumps in particular, again, the grants that are available to that, you know, could you use those funds in a different way to actually get access to, to more and more homes? And that does two things. It brings down the cost per install, which is really important because, you know, cost is a factor, like we say. It's also a great signal to the supply chain to say, yeah, we need more volume of hardware. We need more engineers. There's guaranteed work here for a period of time so we can invest in, in training and upskilling as well. So I think, I think that's one thing we would ask to, that we've seen a bit more action on that. You mentioned heat pumps there, and you may or may not know that this is one of the topics I, I have been pretty active on in the last few years. Um, and the UK, of course, is still at the bottom of the list in Europe when you look at the number of installs um, per capita. It's pretty pretty low. Um, but of course, that is already changing to an extent, and we've seen some growth uh, this year uh, reported by um, you know, various bodies in the UK. So there's been an uptick in, in heat pump demand. Um, but I, I would be interested in hearing sort of from you um, whether you see any interesting customer interest for heat pumps that you install, um, you know, increased awareness, perhaps um, maybe the energy price crisis we've just 
sort of gone through and hopefully are now coming out of um, had an impact as well. But w w what's what's sort of your sense when you compare the market for heat pumps five years ago versus where it is today and, and the customer awareness and the demand for it? H has there been a tangible change from where you sit or would you say not really? Uh, we're still trying very hard to find anyone who's interested. No, I think I think the interest levels are high. Yeah, so I think you know the, the energy crisis for sure. You know, in the in the UK, I'm a, an avid listener to Radio Four. They they seem to absolutely love a, a heat pump phone in, uh, and 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 it's great because you see people really really engaged and really interested in it as well. You know, through our able to pay. Um, solutions. So if you go into the Scottish Power website, you can see what we do. We do a full heat pump um, solution for, for homes and for businesses. Um, and, you know, we get lots of interest through that as well. But but realistically, there's a lot of education that needs to be brought as part of that. So people are starting that journey and they're learning, you know, what, what does it mean? Why, why is it different from a, a boiler, which is what they've been used to probably their entire lives? Uh, you know, why is it different? Why is it better? What does it mean for running costs? What does it mean for disruption through, through changing that as well? So I think that's that's really positive. Actually, we've seen a lot a lot of interest. One, one thing I would reflect on is, is those countries that have gone further and faster in terms of heat pump deployment tend to have lower electricity unit costs. Yeah, so in in the UK, you know, right now the, the price cap price is roughly about twenty seven pence a unit, um, and when you compare that to, to gas um, prices of of just under seven pence a unit, then then actually a heat pump is no cheaper to run than a gas boiler. Mostly it's in parity, you know, it may be a little bit more expensive depending on your consumption, but but and, and that's the real thing that that's that's the driver I think, and you can see that in other countries where you know the counterfactual between having a heat pump or not. You know, really just does drive demand for that. So I think interest levels are high, the education levels low. So we were part of that 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 group that's helping customers understand it a little bit better. But to really turn the dial on it, then we need to make it you know electricity prices and gas prices more reflective. Because as we know in the UK, you know, there's uh, an element of the electricity price that, that's funding lots of um, lots of social tariffs and lots of things um, to, to promote renewable electricity generation, which is fantastic. It's right, but you know, you're really adding it to the fuel that's the solution rather than the fuel that's that, that's part of the problem. So, um, so yeah, I think there's there's definitely things we can do there to to, to capitalise on that interest and, and convert more customers. Well, what I definitely know is that the customers that have heat pumps as a solution absolutely love them. You know, there's there's it's a, there's a different way of um, of having comfort in your home. So rather than blasts of heat on and off with your boiler, you've got a nice constant temperature all, all the time. And you know, I think that's just something that culturally, experientially, in the UK, we're, we're not used to. So when when the whole group of society is not used to something, it does take a bit of time just to, to, to get the word out there and, and you know, and, and have people understand that there is a different but also better way of doing it. I think you can see it already with electric cars. You know, this is probably the conversation we we're having five, ten years ago about electric cars. And now, you know, you, you see so many in the road and people, you know, absolutely love them and they're just for me, you know, it's a better way of actually driving for sure. So again, I think it's just, it'll all happen. I don't doubt for a second that it will all happen. It's just really a case of, you know, there's a there's an imperative to do this quickly and, you know, let's not dawdle. Let's let's do what we can to do these things more quickly. Maybe just quickly, Jan, 
given that you're you look kind of across Europe and you noticed how yeah, per capita you say UK's fallen a bit behind the rest of Europe in, in heat pump insulation, what do you put that down to? Is it a regulatory thing? Is it a cultural thing? Well, I think Chris made a very important point. Uh, we've actually looked at the price ratio between electricity and gas prices for residential customers uh, a while back. This was before the energy price crisis and back in 2021. And we, we indeed found that there is this correlation. So you, you see a, a clear correlation where the price ratio between electricity and gas prices is quite narrow. Then the uptake of heat pumps tends to be higher because you get more cost savings and you actually save money if you install a heat pump. Where you have a very widespread the uptake is lower for the reasons that Chris has already outlined. So that is one of the key factors. It's not the only one. I mean, there, there are many other factors too. For example, in Norway, a lot of resistive heating, this is direct um, electric heating, has been replaced uh, with heat pumps because you get an immediate 50% or maybe even 60 or 70% cost saving on your running costs. So it's a no-brainer, really, from running cost perspective. Um, so you can't really compare like for like. Um, you know, Each place is a little bit different, but the price ratio, to some extent, yeah, it depends on where do you put your carbon tax. Um, uh, you know, we often see that countries tax electricity or have an emissions target, um, emissions trading system. Um, yeah, the, it's certainly in Europe, we have the emissions trading system. The UK, it's its own system. And that puts a price uh, on the carbon from electricity. But very often countries have not put a carbon price on fossil gas, on heating oil, um, and of course, that distorts the incentives in an unhelpful way if you want to roll out heat pumps. Yeah, it makes electricity more expensive, whereas it keeps the cost of, of uh, oil and gas at relatively low levels. So that is clearly a very, very important factor. Um, and, and then I think the cultural uh, and historical context, of course, matters too. You know, Having a more efficient building stock um, and a tradition of um, you know, more efficient heating helps. Um, countries had used a lot of heating oil in the past, you know, in the 1970s when we had the energy price crisis then, oil was the, you know, the main fuel that really showed those massive price spikes and that triggered big changes in the Nordic countries, which are the leaders in the world when it comes to heat pump deployment. But they used an awful lot of heating oil before, you know, this was triggered by um, the energy crisis in the 70s, essentially. <music> Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. And Chris, it's all well and good improving um, numbers of heat pumps being installed and other uh, smart solutions. Uh, and you've, you mentioned your work with, with low-income households. What can what can companies like Scottish Power do, and, and maybe even also the UK government as well, to help these low-income uh, households benefit from, say, getting onto heat pumps or other forms of uh, low-carbon technology, uh, and also maybe the likes of grid, off-grid housing, of which I assume there's quite a few still left in, in Scotland and other parts of the UK um, in accessing decarbonized uh, technologies. Yeah, so I think um, 
the UK as a whole, it's about 15% of households that are not on the gas grid. In Scotland, it's actually 19%, so a little bit above the average, but not, but not hugely above. But, you know, as Jan was just describing, you know, if you are currently heating your home because you've got an oil tanker coming to your house once every few months and, and filling up a, a tank in the garden, then a heat pump is going to save you money on day one. So, you know, it's absolutely the right thing for you to, to, to be looking at already. And, you know, if you look at Scotland in particular, there's, there's, um, you know, additional grants that you get if you're in a rural off grad, uh, off gas grid uh, position as well, which I think is is the right thing to do, just to, to encourage people to, to kind of make that step. So, um, <clears throat> so I think yeah, that's that's kind of part of that challenge uh, as well. I think you know, just more more widely, you know, the co- the cost of energy in the UK compared to two three years ago is 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 close to doubled. You know, so customers on an average house and uh, are paying, you know, almost a thousand pounds a year more for, for their energy. Um, and, and, you know, I think the mistake that anybody would make is to assume that anybody using more than the average is automatically in a, in a bigger, you know, more wealthier house, which isn't the case. You know, there's many um, people in low income households who, who use higher than average, mainly because they're in poorly insulated homes and, you know, and, and older heating systems and, uh, and, you know, the lack of other kind of low carbon technology. So, yeah, so again, we, we absolutely need to prioritise these homes. As I said beforehand, the, the people that benefit the most, if we leave it to, to you know, the normal market, then they'll afford it the least. Uh, and they'll be at the end of the queue rather than at the start of the queue. And, and you know, and we've got big challenges in the UK in terms of creating the right signals to build the scale that would then reduce the cost, particularly for, for kind of heat pump deployment. And, you know, go back to the point I made before, I think the Eco4 delivery mechanism has, has proven itself to be to be the most efficient one. So, you know, what, what could you do there? Then, you know, more investment in that is actually going to reduce, it's going to create scale, it's going to create demand, it's going to create certainty for the marketplace, and therefore it's going to reduce the cost to, to the able to pay. So actually overall, it's going to... to um, to you know really help accelerate where we need to be for the heat pumps you know uk government's stated an ambition of 600,000 uh, heat pumps per year in the next few years and you know we're not even close to scratching the surface in that just now so you know something does need to be done that is very very different and i think starting at the low income households first is is a really obvious you know thing to to do would you guys offer it's not just a heat pump obviously we, we've repeatedly said this on this podcast it needs to be a fully insulated home in order to really maximize those those benefits are you able to or can the utilities offer those sort of services to come into a house and go look if you need to do this for your roof these on your walls here's a heat pump blah 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 and kind of on a case-by-case basis, almost? No, 100%. So for us, through the eco scheme, then exactly what happens, mm. we go in and do a whole house assessment. Right. And we say, what is the, you know, what is the lowest cost mm-hmm. way of providing the biggest bill savings to yeah. that customer? So, so in some cases, it's just insulation windows and doors. Uh, you know, but but realistically, you know, a lot of that's been that, that easier stuff, if I can call mm-hmm. it that, has been captured in previous schemes. Um, so not, not everybody gets a heat pump as, as a part of the solution, but quite often, if you're you know if you're on a off gas grid, for for example, 100%, you know, a heat pump is going to be a really good solution. Sure. But no, it's an it's an absolute bespoke upgrade depending on what's the the, the lowest cost way of of giving the highest bill savings to the customer. But even on the able to pay. 
uh, you know, so if you're not qualifying under an eco fund, for example, uh, and you want to, you know, have a heat pump or even a solar panel mm-hmm. battery EV solution, then again, that's that's what we do. We do a full, you know, house assessment because if I just come in and put a heat pump in and then you know, it's not insulated properly, then you're not going to have the right experience afterwards. So it's really, really important that, that that's part of the overall experience. And, and, you know, no two houses are the same and certainly no two, you know, families, households live in the same houses in the same way as well. So, you know, really just make, make sure that it's designed uh, designed properly. And I think that's, that's kind of key as well because, you know, if we try and promote this as a solution, which I think it really should be, you know, if we don't do it well at the outset, it's just going to create more, skepticism and more negativity which is, is the last thing we need chris the the other um side of this of course is the supply side you know the all these technologies we talked about uh, whether you mentioned electric vehicles before um batteries um heat pumps um in the last few minutes of our conversation are only really low carbon or zero carbon eventually if the electricity that goes into them is 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 actually zero carbon or comes primarily from renewables uh, or other low carbon sources and uh, now moving on maybe a little bit to a topic that i know dave is particularly interested in which is is um uh, wind um yeah last year was a tremendous success in the uk i think we had about 27% of the entire generation in the uk was from wind primarily offshore because uh, there's not lots of onshore wind in the uk um, but we've also seen reports um, over the last few months that investments were kind of going down and there was investor certain uncertainty and sort of signs pointing in the wrong direction, you know. Um, and uh, we have an auction now where I think for the first time, no bidders have come forward, according to media reports, to actually bid for offshore wind projects. There were some for other renewables projects, but not for offshore wind. So can you make some sense of all of this? What What's going on? Why is that happening? Unpick that a little bit um is this to do with policy is this to do with inflation costs um other places being more competitive just to give our listeners a bit of bit of a flavor sort of what what's going on in the uk right now when it comes to investment in um new wind capacity yeah i think i think i think the first thing to say is you know more wind you know is is good the more wind is needed the more wind is, is coming this is all about the pace in which we in which we deploy it you know so i think that like i say there's a huge advantage in, in doing this more and more quickly um, and say i'm the customer side of the business the renewables team will be a better place to give you the full detailed analysis and i think you deserve on this but but clearly it's the case that as we can see in the uk as we can see in many other countries that inflation has been you know so high you know in, in the last year or two uh, and that's that's reflected in you know cost of materials as well as to labour as to you know doing any project you know so you know you only have to do your weekly supermarket shop to realise what inflation impact is is, is having at all all industries uh, and you know you know wind is no different solar is no different you know building a nuclear power station is no different the inflation is going to have an impact on on them all and I think it seems that the, the CFD the contracts for difference process that has been successful in the past and UK hasn't kept up to speed with with inflation, so you know asking to try and achieve a certain price when when costs have gone up is is, is resulted in, in uh, the outcome that we've just seen today. So, which is really unfortunate. You know, all all it's doing really is eating up more time. You know, I've got no doubt that we'll work through it and we'll fix it, and you know something will happen in, in a in a future round. But 
all we've really done is is create a gap. Uh, and the risk is that, as you know, other countries are, are doing the same. Uh, and the risk is that, you know, some of that investment goes uh, to other countries while uh, we're waiting for another round to kind of resolve that. So, uh, so that's an unfortunate side of things. You know, the best thing that we can do, let's say, is is decarbonise our, our electricity generation in the UK. The reason why we have high electricity prices today is because, you know, a lot of the electricity we use is generated from gas fire power stations and that high gas prices is, is setting the price for, for everything else. So the, the more we can do to displace it with, with wind, with solar, with battery technology, with flexibility, um, and, it's, and I mean displace it in the sense that to reduce it. You know, so reducing it has huge benefits in terms of cost. It's also got huge benefits in terms of the environment, but you're still going to need some element of it. You, you can probably concede, but, but, you know, there's definitely, you know, nobody would have guessed we would have reduced coal and the speed in which we did in the UK by replacing it with, with wind, uh, you know, I think there's definitely an opportunity to do uh, the same for for a lot of the gas fire power stations uh, if you have more and more investment in wind. What about Scottish power itself? Um, you say all of your electricity is renewably uh, produced. Do you have any any sort of form of uh, fossil fuel capacity online at all? No, no. So everything we generate is, is either onshore wind, offshore wind, or uh, through through solar. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, so yeah, yeah. And I think that's a decision we made a number of years ago, twenty nineteen, mm. is when you know we um, dispatched all of our remaining uh, gas fire power stations. We closed the last coal plant in Scotland. I think it was back in twenty seventeen in, in Long Annet. Um, so you know, so but again, that, that's a kind of real. You know, that's that's a value for us. You know, we we wanted we wanted to use the funds from that to invest in more uh, more wind as well. And I think it's really important that you know, I think in, in England in particular, the the onshore wind uh, debate has is is another thing that's kind of happened uh, to to pop up in the press this week. And some of the barriers to that appear to have been that have been lessened, but. Again, there's there's such a, a fantastic opportunity for for local communities as well as the, the the wider energy supply system. You know, I think people probably don't get the opportunity to appreciate that actually having more of this means you're going to have lower bills. Yeah. Right. And that and that's realistically the outcome of it. Now it's not as straight transactionally as that, unfortunately, to to understand. But this is the direction we need to go in, and the faster we go, then the the better it is. But also for the environment, you know, you know, I think we're just um, thinking about our, our summer holidays that we may be on as well, but there's been plenty of things in the uh, in, in the press that you've seen in, in, in a number of different countries, not including the UK, in terms of you know extreme heat, extreme uh, weather, you know floods, you know all these things that you know, we see more and more as part of climate change, which we know is only going to get worse. Mm-hmm. If we don't do what we need to do more quickly than we're currently doing it, um, one thing I, I want to touch on briefly, given that you're from Scottish Power, I know you cover the, the, all of the UK, um, but Scotland itself is quite an interesting market. It's got a, a certain level of autonomy from the central government in Westminster, um, and it has a certain control over it, where the uh, renewable what renewables can be installed and, and its own planning laws and things like that. But it's also an economy that still relies on uh, North Sea oil and gas as well. How do you see Scotland itself moving forward uh, in the next few years and in its decarbonisation journey? It's been one quite forward thinking, but also still um, quite dependent on, on fossil fuels. Yeah, I think the you know Scotland's certainly been faster uh, and, and more of a leadership role in, in other parts of the UK, and you know and it's been great to be part of that as well. So you know. 
you know, there's such such a, a huge opportunity in Scotland, just given the geography and the topology in terms of uh, creating wind and also solar, and you know, eventually potentially even um, kind of tidal uh, energy as well. So it has such a fantastic opportunity to do that, and has exploited that to to a large uh, extent. I think what we see in Scotland, which is the the uh, the program of of lots of uh, offshore wind farms that have been built through largely through the kind of north coast of, of Scotland, I think is really exciting and to see such a a wide range of different companies that that are involved in and partnerships within those companies, I think is is really exciting as well. The challenge we know that we've got is how do we get all that generation to the people that actually need it, and and then that becomes a challenge around about transmission and distribution, which again I think you see fantastic investment in in signals um, to to the companies involved there to, to do more of that. Like your your point about the you know the dependency on on oil and gas, I think you know it's uh you know it's been a kind of key part. Of, of Scotland's economy for, for such a long period of time and I think that that's the thing that, that kind of creates that that concern and, that, and that, that worry. I think you know the, the term we use a lot is just transition. We know we need to transition right but it needs to be fair on everyone. Nobody needs to be left behind. There's there's plenty of stories particularly in Scotland where you know things like shipyards were closed down and there was no alternative employment for those people and, and that creates deprivation. It creates you know a negative impact on uh, on communities and that's the, that's the last thing that should happen here as part of this transition which we know we absolutely must do I think the thing that really gives me kind of heart and positivity you know if I if I, if I look at when I ask people to, to join my team and I'm recruiting you know I'll, I'll always look at capability over experience and if you've got experience that's fantastic but really if you've got the capabilities then there's no doubt that you can learn the, 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 the through experience you know the skills and pick those up and, and really um, take advantage of those capabilities and we look at the oil and gas sector and what we need to do in terms of you know renewable generation and, and through networks and, uh, and and low carbon tech deployment as well you see a massive crossover in terms of the capabilities that, that are there so I've got really you know optimi- high optimism that you know we can we can transition them across so that people can use the skills that they have and the capabilities that they have and, and redeploy them in, in, uh, in that sector you know it's, um, from a Scottish power point of view we've got a dedicated training centre uh, near Cumbernauld uh, where we have been you know, upskilling and reskilling lots of different people that have come from different parts of the, um, the dare I call it the old or the traditional energy uh, market, uh, energy um, industry. Um, but also, you know, when I speak to graduates who are, you know, interested in joining Scottish Power and, you know, it's a little bit frustrating when you work in the customer business that everybody wants to go and build a wind farm. But it's really exciting as well that, you know, that's when I see, when I speak to, you know, people coming out of universities and, and out of colleges, uh, that that's what they want to do. They want to make a real difference and they can see this as making a, a real difference as well. So I think there's, there's you know, this is a transition. Mm. Right? So we're kind of going from, we're running a system to we need to change the system and, into a new system. That is automatically going to need more people. You know, it will need more people than it, it takes to, to run a system. So there's there's huge opportunity here as well. But we do really be mindful that, you know, we don't just leave people behind and we do take a full advantage of, of the skills and experiences that people have in oil and gas. And are you are you finding the those people with skills? You said mentioned obviously there's a lot of crossover from the oil and gas sector, but are there the people there? Are do we have the enough engineers and um installers and things like that to meet the the demand and the targets? 
I think right now, you know, there's not enough. You know, there's a huge recruitment drive, so we're trying to recruit a thousand roles across our networks and renewables businesses. Uh, and you know, there's been great success in that just now. But you know, that's a thousand roles, and in, in any economy, is is, is a, a large number of jobs, and and, and has its uh, challenges. And it's not just us that are looking for these people, so it, it creates other. Uh, other dynamics in that, in that recruitment. I think there's, you know, long term, absolutely there is. Um, but, you know, it's just how, again, it's all about pace, how, how quickly we can do that. I think the other thing to recognise is, you know, every, you know, I'm 20 years in the industry, but I'm still not that old. But I do remember the odd energy crisis in the past. And it's always a it's always a fossil fuel energy crisis. And the one that we had a few years back where actually lots of people in the North Sea were, were laid off really yeah, short notice because the, the oil price plummeted and and actually you know full disclosure my, my brother works in the oil and gas industry or used to work in the oil and gas industry he was a medic health and safety side um rather than anything engineering wise but you know he just got told one day just that's you we're closing it down don't come back and and obviously lots of people get the same news so really struggled to find you know another role in that so you know that industry has those shocks as, as well so it, it creates the opportunity for people to say well i'm not going to you know that's unreliable to me so therefore i'm going to retrain and you know my brother works um you know in a completely different sector now using the same skills as he's had before so so yeah absolutely we, we see that and you know that that can happen from time to time we've mentioned it there uh, we've mentioned it a few times in this podcast about the energy crisis um obviously the most recent one in the uk where we saw uh electricity prices but also you know other other fuels uh, the price of them increased really sharply and the uk government had to intervene um, how what sort of impact did that crisis have on your operations uh, as a as a big utility so i think it's, it's had a huge impact right so first of all from the customer's point of view as i just said their bills increased significantly um you know we're not budgeting for it you know it's a, it's a shock it's a surprise and you know and it, it creates it creates other challenges as well so you know we had to be really mindful to, to support customers throughout that so you know we didn't cut anybody off or non-payment of course you know we, we supported customers who said that you know i could afford my bills but now i cannot and you know we, we, we worked with those customers to to make sure that they could you know stay on track and don't get into too much debt um so and you know and, and that that's part of being a responsible you know supplier but also you know you're providing a public good and we were able to to, to try and do that but equally you know the, the challenges that customers have got are, are are societal yeah so you know if if people are in fuel poverty you know are they getting paid enough are they getting the opportunity to earn enough money you know the jobs available as a market uh, as, as a whole you know it's not just an energy challenge but albeit we all use energy so we all kind of feel that that experience and um, so from a customer side then then absolutely it's been it's been tough and it's been challenging and it continues to be so so even though we see through price cap small decreases you know compared to last year and, and the removal of additional government support customers are, are you know, probably just the same as as last winter. So it's still going to be it's still going to be a really tough time for for a lot of people. Um, so I think I think that's that's definitely you know one of the kind of main impacts. I think from a, a an energy supply point of view, like you say, I've spent many years in this company with the objective of we want to get more customers, we want to grow the business, we want to supply more people, we want to you know give them um, you know obviously a good good experience. And all of a sudden, it was. You know, we don't sell anymore. We don't. You know, there's no movement in the marketplace. Essentially, competition was was paused for the best part of a year, and that's really 
unnatural. It was just felt unnatural, to be honest, because that's what we do, and that's and that's what we're really good at uh, as well. So, and it's interesting to see now that there's some signs of of the UK market starting to open up, and you know more tariffs starting to be offered. I think what's really different this time around is if you could, there was a there was a cost benefit to having a fixed price tariff. Yeah, so you know you could be on a variable tariff, um, but if you committed to you know a customer, um, a company for a year or two years, there's a cost benefit to that, and you, you would you would receive that benefit through lower prices, and and that's not really the case in the current marketplace just now. So I think you're seeing fixed price deals that are not any cheaper than the variable price deals right. just now, and I think that's that's culturally I think this is new for the UK because a fixed price deal always meant a, a lower cost, mm. and that's not necessarily happening just now. So it was really interesting. To see how, you know, how customers react to to, to that that um, that sort of new dynamic in the energy supply in the UK. And is that because utilities are trying to sort of protect themselves a little bit from the sudden they don't want to be having on as many or low price fixed price tariffs um, for when if fuel prices do issue up again, the cost burden is on them. It's, well, it's it's just the dynamic between you know a fixed price tariff is the reflective of the energy cost in the market today, uh, mm. whereas the counterfactual is the is the price cap which is set by uh, set by Ofgem, which sure. is based on you know a bit of the future, but also a little bit of um, of what's happened in the past as well. Which and it's it's mm. less about. I mean, fixed price and variable prices are there's not much difference because of those two different dynamics. Now, if something happens in the industry which means that you know prices fall dramatically then you would get a fixed price that's a, a little bit lower but price caps revised every three months it would catch up within three months in any case so you know i think that's that's the, a, a very different dynamic from you know historically what's been the case in the uk supply market so it's just it's just interesting i think it goes back to the point i was making at the start which is if that's if that's the pricing dynamic then actually from a supply point of view if i'm only going to get a marginal benefit from jumping about on tariffs then what is it that i really need from my energy supplier that's going to help me and that's back to you know they understand my energy consumption they can help me move it shift it reduce it you know they can give me the information that allows me to uh, to make informed choices so that i can you know minimize uh, my, my consumption and i think that's uh, that's that's a really that's probably the, the biggest area of competition that i really see in the uk supply market chris thank you so much uh we're coming to the end of our time today uh one thing we ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the uh, energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years' time? So I'd love to know that. Well, I'll definitely be a veteran by that point. I think um, I think what, what, what would absolutely love to happen is that, um, you know, if you think about back in the 70s when nobody ever wore a seatbelt, right? And, and now the first thing you do when you're in a car is you put a seatbelt on, you don't even think about it. I would absolutely love that anything we do in terms of building, you know, a home or a business or a building or whatever, we automatically just maximize the the the, the low carbon tech uh, that as well. The thing that really, really annoys me is you walk past, you know, you drive past the housing development, I see nice big fancy houses and I see six solar panels on that roof and I'm like, oh, take 20 why are you only putting six on there and i know the reason the reason is because that's the building reg and that's the minimum cost and that's what they have to do so they won't do anymore that's the thing i would love to change is that we don't even we don't even need to legislate for it we automatically as a society think no we need to absolutely maximize the efficiency of the building reduce the energy you're using maximize the the, the ability to, to generate our own clean free energy i think that's i think that's where we'll be i think you know my 
you know, my kids, my certainly my grandkids. That hopefully that's that's the world they they kind of see and think why why was it even a problem back in you know the twenty twenties. Amazing. Yeah, I hope so too. That's uh, very aspirational. Um, before we go, quickly run around the table and ask what caught your eye this week. Uh, Jan, let's uh, begin yeah, with sure. you. Yeah, um, sure. For me, it was an article in The New Scientist about heat pumps and beer brewing, which is an interesting combination, not much talked about yet. But um, in that article, the journalist kind of looks at examples of where this is already happening and explains the benefits of brewing beer with heat pumps. Um, so I, I would mm. recommend people who have an interest in heat pumps and maybe not have thought about beer brewing uh, with heat pumps to take a hard look at that article. Mm. Or even the people with interest in beer. Um, Chris, how about you? What caught your eye this week? So uh, I saw an article just the other day in, in the BBC. It was a, a study by um, Sheffield Hallam University. Um, and what they did was the um, kind of groups of people throughout uh, different parts of the UK, a small subset, it would seem, um, who had, you know, particular health problems and were, you know, use, users of the NHS on a regular basis. And part of what was diagnosed is they live in cold homes. You know, they were, they were suffering from, you know, not living in, in warm, comfortable homes. So there was some um, subsidy that was given to them. So they didn't need to worry about heating their homes and they got more comfort. And what it found uh, was that they used the NHS a lot less. Uh, and I think, you know, we can see other studies as well where actually, the 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 kind of the unseen cost of of actually the, the problems that we have of you know of cold drafty homes is actually costing us as taxpayers through things like healthcare and social care and uh, and other support mechanisms as well. So I think that I think it's a really interesting one to see and to follow up because I think actually when we think about investing in these things, we automatically think of payback and it's a it's a fairly, you know, simple calculation, but we don't actually think of the societal benefit and the societal costs and the, you know, from a taxpayer point of view what we would get. So I think, yeah, that's a really interesting one because, and it shows how it makes a difference to actual people's lives, you know, improved health, improved mental health. It's, it's really, really important. Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting story, that one. Uh, and for me, yeah, well, it has to be the uh, lack of offshore wind in the latest UK uh, CFD auction round. Um, obviously, a sign of the times, both in terms of the offshore uh, sector, but also energy more widely. Um, hopefully, it's a, a blip, uh, not a trend, and uh, we'll see what happens maybe next year. Um, but yeah, really, really, really concerning. And it delays, it's going to delay the UK's energy transition there. So um, yeah, not a good sign at the moment, but may turn around very soon that's all we have time for this week my thanks to chris and yan uh, if you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast you can reach us uh, on our twitter accounts i'm on at dave w underscore foresight uh, yan i'm on yan rosano uh, and chris how can people get hold of you um, best place to get me is on linkedin so chris carberry scottish power there's, there's only one of those absolutely uh, and if you have any questions for the team you can tweet the show at what matters pod or email us at show at what matters podcast.com Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again next time.